All right. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome out here to Grace Church at the Medina East Campus. And uh, hey, before we jump into things, I uh, just want to kind of reiterate something Steve Van Meter just talked about a moment ago, and that is uh, Bible Camp. And man, it was awesome this past week, and we had over 300 kids uh, who were able to get connected to Bible Camp through our community. Uh, we're still waiting to get the number of how many of those kids dedicated their life to Jesus, but we know that many did get a chance to do that. And I just wanted to, to just stop and just recognize that if you're someone who helped with Bible Camp in every way. We know it takes a whole community to pull something like that off. And if you did that, I just want to say, man, thanks so much. And, and your, your investment this past week is something that will echo into eternity. And uh, getting a chance to impact lives in, uh, of the kids like we had to this week is awesome. And so I just want to say, as a campus pastor here, how proud I am of our church. And uh, man, it just it's awesome to see what we can do when we pull together to do something like that. So awesome week this week. And, uh, and thanks for all of you who are connected to Bible Camp. It's awesome to be able to do that together. Uh, today what we're doing this weekend is we're actually uh, continuing in a series that we've been in pretty much for, for the whole summer season uh, that we have been calling the Everyday Revolution. And if you're a guest with us here today, or if this is your first time here at Grace Church, I, of course, again, just want to say thanks so much for being here. We, we counted a privilege that you would take some time and check us out and carve out some time to spend some time with us here on Sunday morning. Um, but let me just kind of give you sort of a quick recap as to what it is that we've been talking about if you missed the previous week. So in this series that we're doing called the Everyday Revolution, uh, what it is that we're studying together and looking at is we're actually looking at a certain set of passages in the New Testament that are sometimes referred to as the household codes. And so this is what we've been looking at together. And we say what the household codes, what that refers to is a collection of passages in the Bible that speak to the everyday relationships of life, right? So in the household codes, for example, it talks about just the practical nitty-gritty day-to-day relationships like marriage and like parenting and like work-related relationships and things of that nature. And so we've been looking at this together. And the reason we've been studying these passages, we said, is quite simply to investigate one question. And the one question that we've been investigating in this series is this, is does God have an ideal for our everyday relationships? So that's the question we've been looking at together. We said this is a pretty simple question, but it actually has really profound implications, right? Does God, in other words, does God have a way that he wants us to interact in marriage? Does God have a way that he wants marriage to be done? Does he have a way that he wants parenting to be done? Does God have a way that he wants children to interact with parents and generations to interact with each other and work-related relationships? Does God have a way that he wants that done? Does he have an ideal or is it simply that each one of us in, in our culture gets to decide and determine what those things are? So does every culture just decide, this is what we think marriage should be, and this is what we think parenting should look like? Or is there a transcendent ideal that comes from God that applies throughout all of history and applies to every culture? And so we've been investing that together. Like I said, we have covered a lot of ground in this series. So let me just kind of recap for you where we've been we started this series, we actually began in this section, we started talking about the everyday relationship of marriage, and we spent a few weeks talking about this. And we said, what is God's ideal for marriage? And we actually discovered that God does have an ideal for marriage. We actually spent a whole week talking about God's ideal for husbands. We spent another week talking about God's ideal for wives. And we spent another week talking about God's idea for singles. And so we kind of took some time to process through that. Then some of you guys might remember, after we talked about marriage, we actually changed gears. 
we started having the conversation about parenting. And we said, does God have an ideal for parenting? And we discovered that he does. And so we looked at that and we said, man, what is God's ideal for us as parents as we raise our children? And what is God's ideal for children at every stage and at every age to honor their parents? So we had a chance to kind of navigate through that together. We switched gears again. We started talking about generations. We spent a couple weeks on this. We, we said, man, how do older and younger generations interact and interplay with each other? Does God have a way that he wants that done? And we discovered that together. Then last couple of weeks, we started talking about work-related relationships. Uh, how do employees and employers, how do bosses and, and, and those who relate to their boss, does God have a way that he wants that relationship to look? And so we got a chance to process that together. Like I said, covered a lot of ground. And I would encourage you, if you missed any of these conversations, you can obviously go onto our website. You can watch, you can listen to, you can subscribe to our podcast, catch up on any of those conversations. We'd encourage you to do that. All that is for free. And all that is for you. But today what we're going to do, and actually for the next three weeks that we're together, is we actually are going to switch gears again, and we're going to start the conversation about everyday people. Now that's kind of a general and vague way to really say that what it is that we're going to be talking about for the next three weeks is we're going to be talking about gender issues, okay? So, so really what we're talking about with people is we're talking about manhood and womanhood. And again, the question is, does God have an ideal does God have a way that he desires for genders to function in a society, in a church, and in the family, right? Does God have an ideal for manhood and for womanhood? And that's kind of the question that we're going to be investigating, like I said, for the next few weeks. Now, here's the thing, all right? I know that the moment I put these words up on the screen, that for some of us, we immediately get a little tense. And the reason is very understandable, because as you and I know, uh, this has become a very sensitive topic, especially in the cultural landscape that we find ourselves in today. If you think about it for a minute, most of the hot-button issues that we see in the political world, in the religious world, and even in school systems, a lot of the hot-button issues that we see, if you, if, you, if you think about it, they actually kind of center in this issue, right? So, so think about it for a minute. You have um, gender equality, feminism, gender dysphoria, uh, same-sex attraction. These are all very hot-button topics, but if you think about it, they all are centered around this idea of gender identity and gender issues. What does it mean to be a man, and what does it mean to be a woman? And so it's a very important, but it's also a very sensitive conversation in the culture that we find ourselves in. And so here's the thing. I know, I know that when I put that up there, like I said, some of you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so where are we going with this? What are you going to say, and, and how are we going to navigate this? Now, here's the thing. There is a lot that we could say on this topic. Uh, there are so many different directions you could go in, in having this conversation. And obviously, we don't have time, even in the three weeks that we have, to unpack all the different dimensions of this conversation. But I think if you want to boil it down to the root issue, what lies at the root of gender identity and gender issues, and what lies at the root of what the Bible teaches about gender identity and gender issues, I think you have to understand a little bit of how we define gender. That really matters, because so much of our understanding of gender identity and gender issues stems from how we define this. You're like, some of you are like, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, let me explain what I mean. Some of you might be aware that since the 1970s, so about for the last about 40 years in American culture, it has become widely accepted and increasingly so that gender, that the root issue of gender 
is that gender is nothing more than a mere social construct. Okay, that, that has been what has become the most widely accepted consensus in our culture today, that gender is nothing more than a social construct. Now, you might be thinking, okay, what exactly is that? So let me give you a definition. I actually went to dictionary.com, got a definition of social construct. Here's what it is. A social construct or a cultural construct is a social mechanism, phenomenon, or category that is created and developed by society. It is a perception of an individual group or an idea that is constructed through cultural or social practice. So in other words, a social construct is a phenomenon that is created by a society. All right, so let me see if I can make it even more clear. I'll give you an example of a social construct. A social construct would be something like a hand gesture. All right, so for illustration's sake, I want you to imagine for a minute that you're driving down the road. Okay, so you're driving down 18 and I'm driving the other way. We pass each other, okay, and I see you and you see me and we recognize each other. And let's say that when I see you, when we pass each other, I give you a hand gesture, all right? Well, now, depending on what hand gesture I give you, uh, you are going to interpret that and understand that depending on what, what, I, what I do, right? So, for example, let's say we're passing, I see you, you see me, and I decide that to give you a hand gesture and I throw up a very particular finger, all right? This one. And you guys didn't... <laughs> You guys didn't think I was going there, did you? All right, so let's say I do that. Okay, so we pass each other, and I'm like, yeah, now how are you going to interpret this? Well, positively, right? Because our culture has decided that this is actually something that means a positive thing. Thumbs up, right? I'm even getting one in return, right? You might throw me one of those in return. So if I pass you and you pass me and I give you a feedback, all right, you know, Pastor Tony, thumbs up, man. It's good, you know. That's a good thing. Now let's say we pass each other on the road, and I decide to throw up two fingers, okay? My, my pointer finger and my middle finger at you. Now, what does this mean? Peace, right? And once again, you're going to interpret this positively because our culture has determined that this symbolizes peace. You might say to yourself, oh, yeah, peace. I mean, that's a little hippie-esque, but yeah, cool, you know, peace. It's, it's great, man, right? And let's say if I'm passing you, I throw up all my fingers. How do you interpret this? Hi, in fact, some of you just waved right back at me. Hi, that's how, this, this means hello when all my fingers are up in the air, right? Hey, right? Now, if I give you four fingers and I split them in the middle... I'd Vulcan, that's what you're going for. You're like, he's a Trekkie. If, and, and, and if I was to pass you and give you the middle finger, well, then you would be offended and you'd probably start to think uh, critically about me, unless you're on my staff, that's our normal greeting for each other. <laughs> but if, if I was to do that, that would be kind of hard. Now, what am I getting at? Here's what I'm getting at, okay? Is there anything morally superior about one digit on my hand over the other? Well, the answer is well, no, only that which society places on it because it's a societal construct. That which we have agreed upon as a culture is what gives it morality and gives it meaning, right? Uh, is there anything in the biological composition of my fingers that makes one more suitable for one role over the other to mean one thing over the next? Well, no, it's just what our society has given us. So again, let's say we're driving on the road and I shot you the okay sign, okay. On well, our culture, that's a positive thing. But man, you take this same gesture around the world, this means all kinds of different stuff. Right? You go to Japan, this means money. Uh, if you go to France, this means zero. If you go to Russia or Germany, this is deeply offensive. 
to, to do this to someone. Now, is there a right or wrong meaning to this? Well, it all depends on the society you're in because that is a social construct. That's what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a construction of society. Now, here's what's happened, all right? If you can understand that, you can understand what is widely accepted about gender within our culture. Our culture has said gender is nothing more than a matter of social construct. Now, sure, people are biologically born male or female. We have, we have, uh, we have similar DNA, but we have different reproductive organs, different plumbing systems within us. But outside of that, the issue of gender is nothing more than a social construct. And so the reason that men are expected to like sports and to drink beer and not wear pink and never cry and like power tools is only because our culture has placed those expectations on men. And the reason that women have expectations placed on them is simply because that's what our society has placed on them. And so what's happened is our culture has looked and said, gender, therefore, is nothing more than an issue of social construct. And so what that's led us to is it's led us to a place as, as a society where we would say the way to freedom and the way to fulfillment and, and the way to, to finding uh, flourishing in our gender is not to constrain it to any one meaning. And so, and so let's not put any expectations on what gender should be anymore. Everyone should be able to define gender as they so choose because that's the path to progress. That's the path forward. That's the way that our culture kind of looks at that. Now, what that's done then is it has led us to where we are today. And where we are today is we are in the midst of a whole bunch of complexity, a whole bunch of controversy, and a whole bunch of confusion as it relates to the issue of gender. I'll just give you one illustration of what I mean. I could give you a ton. You could probably give me some too. But I'll just give you one illustration to make that point. It, 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 there's a, a college that got a lot of press back in 2014, a college uh, called Mount Holyoke University. Mount Holyoke College is actually an all-women's college. Traditionally, it's a very prestigious college. And so back in 2014, they started to get a lot of press because they decided that they wanted to remain an all-women's school. But the problem was, because our culture defines social uh, uh, gender as a social construct, what they did is they said, well, if, if this is going to be an all-women's school, we have to define what it means to be a woman. Who can actually be accepted at our school? So they started to make some adjustments to their academic admissions policy. And I just want to show you, this is right off their webpage. This is what they say. The following academically qualified students can apply for admission consideration at Mount Holyoke College, which is an all-women's school. So they said, what does it mean to be a woman? And here's their definition. They said, here's who can apply. Number one, a biologically born female who identifies as a woman. Okay, so that's, you're, you're born as a female and you would say that your gender is, is, is woman. Number two, biologically born female that identifies as a man. Number three, biologically born female identifies as other slash they. Number five, biologically born female does not identify as either woman or man. Number six, I think, biologically born male identifies as a woman. Number seven, biologically born male identifies as other slash they and when other slash they identity includes woman. Number eight, biologically born with both male and female anatomy, intersex, identifies as a woman. And if you go to their webpage, this is just a sample, if you go to their webpage, you will just see a list of just these nuanced, complex, 
you know, caveats of what about this situation, what about that circumstance. Now, again, the reason I show you all of that is just to highlight the level of complexity. And these are the conversations that are happening at colleges across our country, at public schools across our country. They're happening in workplaces around our country because our, our society has looked and said gender is nothing more than a social construct. So, so here's what happens now. Because our culture believes this, widely, not everybody, but widely, what has happened is when we read the Bible, and by the way, it's probably no surprise to any of you, the Bible has some very definitive things to say about gender and human sexuality. Very definitive things to say. What's happened is our culture that views gender as a social construct looks at the Bible and says, well, that's regressive and that's anti-progress and that's narrow and that's restricting and that's sexist. And some have even went as far to say that's even hate speech because of the culture we live in. In fact, let me just show you what, what I mean. If you, um, if you remember at the beginning, I said what we're studying in this series is we're studying the household codes. And the household codes are passages of the Bible that talk about the everyday relationships. Well, some of the household codes are some of the most offensive passages in the Bible to our culture. And the reason is because of what they say about gender. And let me just show you. Here's an example. In Ephesians chapter five, you guys might remember we talked about this during the marriage portion of our conversation. Ephesians 5 says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands are to love their wives just like Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. And you guys know that this is one of the passages that in our culture is deeply offensive. And the reason is because even though it's about marriage, you can see that there's an undercurrent of gender role assumptions that are found within this passage. Here's a couple other examples. In Ephesians 6, this is another household code. It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And when we were talking about the parenting conversation, we said that there is an unusual amount of responsibility that God places on the role of fathers within their home. Now, that, is a, that is a gender-related issue. Now you see the same thing in First Peter 3. This is a verse that's written directly to women. It says, women, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Or how about this one? This, is, this passage in First Timothy 2 is actually known as the text of terrors by feminists says this, a woman should learn in quietness, in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. And so you see, what, what happens is, in, in a culture that we live in, we look at passages like this and we say, man, those are repressive and those are regressive and those are sexist. And so what's happened is a lot of people have either discounted the Bible entirely, they said, well, the Bible's outdated and it's, we're done with that, or what has happened is in, in, in an attempt to defend the Bible, some people have said, well, that's just cultural. The Apostle Paul was talking to a certain people in a certain time, and we don't, you know, back then there was, it was guys and girls' roles were different, and we live in a different society today, and so therefore these passages don't apply to us anymore. See, but, but here's the thing. All of that, what I just said, would make sense if gender was a matter of social constructionalism. 
But here's what I want you to notice. And if, if everything I said is, is kind of foggy to you, this is where you need to tune in because this is what I want you to get. When you look at the Bible carefully and you look at all the different passages that teach about gender from the different biblical authors, from the Apostle Paul, from the Apostle Peter, from Jesus himself, every time, almost unanimously, when they bring up gender-related issues like marriage or addressing men or women, they almost always, every time, refer to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, why is that important? What's in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Well, if you're, if you're not familiar with your Bible, you might not know. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 speaks of the creation of humanity. Now, why is that important? You actually see it here. The Apostle Paul says women should act a certain way and play a certain role. Look, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. What's he talking about there? Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter, that's what he's talking about. And the reason that's important is this, because the Bible is going to tell us, all of the biblical authors are going to affirm that gender is not an issue of social constructionalism. It's not. The, 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 the Apostle Paul, Peter, and Jesus, they never appeal to their culture. They never say the reason that we do the things we do with gender is because our culture does that. They never say that. They always appeal to created design. They always go back and say gender is not an issue of social construction. Gender is an issue of design. It's how we're made. It goes back to the very beginning in Genesis chapters 1 and Genesis chapter 2. I'll put it another way. What the Bible asserts is this. Gender identity is not an anthropological issue. That is, society and people don't determine what that is. It is an issue of theology. It comes from God. God is the one who defines and determines. And so if we as people want to understand what it truly means to be men and what it truly means to be woman, we look to the creator of man and woman. And so here's the thing, okay? So keeping with the pattern of the biblical authors, here's what I want to do today. All right, I want to take us back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. All right, and I just want to go back to the creation account because this is what the biblical authors always do when they talk about gender. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to grab them with me and let's go to Genesis chapter 1. All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles and get there. And uh, I'm pretty sure that in everyone's Bible today, it's going to be page 1. So Genesis 1, page 1. Even if you're not a Bible person, you should have no problem finding Genesis. First book in the Bible. So you can get there. And let me just say, too, if you don't own a Bible, you can just take one of those black Bibles under our chairs. You can have one of those. And uh, we think it's so important that you have a Bible. And you can just make that a gift. So you can, you can have that. Now, as you guys are finding Genesis chapter 1, you might be thinking, okay, wh where are we going with this? So let me just tell you. All right, I'm just going to tell you where we're going over the course of the next three weeks. So we have three weeks on this topic, and here's my plan. So what I want to do today is I simply want to make three points about gender from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. All right, that's all I want to do. I just want to make three very simple points about gender from the creation account. Next week, what I hope to do is I actually want to spend our whole time talking about biblical manhood. What is God's ideal for biblical manhood, and what does that to look like? The week after that, I want to spend the whole week talking about biblical womanhood. Uh, what is God's ideal for women, and how do we play that out in a way that honors God and is also good for us? How do we, how do, we do that? Okay, so that's where we're going to go. So today, like I said, I just want to give us three simple points about gender from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And let me give you the three points right out of the gate, and then we'll walk them through. So here they are. So here's the three points I want to make. God created man and woman, or gender. God created gender. 
Number one, equally. Number two, uniquely. And number three, for our good and for his glory. All right, so here they are again. Three points I want to make today, right out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God created men and women. God created gender equally, number one. Number two, uniquely. And number three, for our good and for his glory. All right, now what do we mean by that? Well, let's just walk through each one of these. You'll notice the first one. God created man and woman equally. He created us equally. And you will see this right in Genesis chapter one. Uh, some of you uh, might know Genesis one is the story of how God created the heavens and the earth. And so the Bible explains to us the progression of creation, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It explains how he did that, how the earth was formless and void, uh, how God brought order to that, how God made plant life, animal life, all of that you see in the different uh, sequence of creation in Genesis 1. And finally, when you get down to verse 26, you see the creation of mankind. And that's where I want to zoom in a little bit. So let's look at verse 26 together. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So here in verse 26, we see God conferring within himself. You actually see some elements of the Trinity here. God says, let us make human beings in our image. He's conferring within himself. And he says, let's make man. And so you see in the very next verse, in verse 27, it explains how God went about that process. So God created human beings in his image. And the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Right, now let's pause here for a minute because this verse is really important and it is very loaded. You'll notice that each one of these lines illuminates a different dimension about humanity and about gender. So let's just consider them together. Look at the first one. So God created human beings in his image. And this points out a very simple point, but I think a really profound point, and that is this. God created humans. That is to say this. You and I, as human beings, we find our origin in divine creation. We were created. And what that means is that we are not just some chance uh, product of some strange evolutionary process. If that was the case, we would have no purpose and we would have no meaning. But the fact that we were created by a divine, rational being means that we are created for a reason. In order, in order for us to find our purpose and our created intent, that is only found in knowing our creator. And notice it says this. It says, God created human beings in his own image. Now check this out. In the image of God, he created them. I think what this second line points out is it points out the unique dignity that we as humanity bear that is apart from all other aspects of creation. The Bible says that nothing else in God's creation bears the dignity of being made in the image of God. Men and women, you and I, we are made in God's image. And so I've heard some people say, like, what exactly does that mean to be made in God's image? Like, I'm not even sure what that exactly means. And there's actually been a lot of conversation on this. Most scholars, though, they would agree that what it, be, what it means to be made in the image of God is it means that there are certain aspects and qualities about us that set us apart from all other creation. Uh, for example, our moral capacity, our ability to, to understand and reason through things morally, right and wrong, right? Our creative capacity, our relational capacity to relate to each other and relate to God, we worship. 
nothing else in creation seems to do that in the same way that we do that. Our ability to existentially contemplate things. Right? When's the last time you saw your dog looking at a Rembrandt painting saying, hmm, I wonder what the meaning of those colors is. Like, no, that's something that we do. Why? Because, man, we're created in, in the image of God. This speaks to the unique dignity that human beings have over all creation. But then notice the third line. Male and female, he created them. Now, what is that talking about? Well, what, that's, what that is saying is that you and I, men and women, that we are created equally because we are equal in dignity. Together, we share the image of God. We both equally share the image of God. And so we're equal in dignity. We're equal in worth. And so what's the Bible saying? Here's what the Bible's saying. Any religion or any tradition that degrades women or degrades men is disparaging to God. Why? Because we are equal in dignity and we are equal in worth. We are created with an equal weight of dignity because we are both made in the image of God. I love the way John Mark Comer put this. John Mark Comer is the author of a phenomenal book called Loveology. I'd actually encourage you to pick it up if you want to read more on some of this stuff. Here's what he said. So part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we are male and female. Both sexes image or mirror aspects of what God is like. Throughout the scriptures, metaphorical language is used of God as both masculine and feminine. He goes on, yes, more often masculine is used. God is called he, not she. And he is a husband to Israel. He's a father to the Messiah, king, warrior, and so on. But that doesn't mean God's a guy. He goes on, the creator is also El Shaddai, a woman giving birth, a nursing mother, and a hen with her chicks under her wings. Those are other images the Bible uses to explain God. This is important. That means we need both sexes to do our job, to show the world what God is like. We bear the image of God. Together we bear the image of God. There is a multifaceted dimension that is illuminated in both masculinity and femininity. It's those things that God has created. So we are equal in dignity. We are equal in worth. And so the Bible's gonna say that. The Bible's gonna say, yeah, God created men and women equally. But here's the thing I want you to know. The Bible also says that we are also created uniquely. That is to say, men and women are created differently. In Genesis, you see this so clearly in Genesis chapter 2. If you just leaf over a page and look at Genesis chapter 2 with me, the biblical author does something really interesting. He actually zooms in and gives more detail into how humanity was created. And I want you to notice how God made man and woman, starting off in verse 7. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Okay, so the Bible explains how God made man. The Bible says he formed him out of the dust. God breathed into the man, and in that breath he found his being. Then the Bible goes on. It says this. It says, Now the, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now bounce down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, so just a quick recap. God makes the man out of dust. He breathes into the man. God creates the garden. He puts the man into the garden. And he says, listen, you can eat from anything you want. You have absolutely no restrictions. Limitless. The only limitation I'm putting on you is that you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Outside of that, you can do whatever you want. Free reign. And now I want you to notice verse 18 because this is really significant. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper that is suitable for him. Now this is really significant and here's why. Some of you might know in the creation account, with every progressive step of creation, God declares something. You guys might remember what it is. God makes something and then he says, it is what? It's good. It's good. God creates the earth. He says, that's good. God creates vegetation. He says, that's good. God creates the the animals. He says, that's good. But God creates man, and for the very first time in a world before sin even entered the equation, God says, something's not good. He says, it's not good for what? For the man to be alone. In other words, he says, humanity is not done yet. Humanity does not fully and accurately represent my image yet. It's incomplete. And so God says, I'm going to make a helper that is suitable for him. I am going to give him a suitable companion. Now here's what I think is so fascinating. God recognizes that Adam is incomplete. He recognizes that it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God says, I'm gonna make a suitable companion. I'm gonna make a woman for him. But what's so fascinating is the Bible says that rather than God just making, you know, right there being, making the woman and then being like, there, there's a woman. Rather than doing that, God does something really peculiar. Look what he does in verse 19. So the Lord God had formed out of all the ground the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. It goes on, it says, So the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So here's what's so interesting. God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a suitable helper for him. But before I do that, I'm going to give Adam a job. And I'm going to parade all the animals in front of him, and I want, I want Adam to name them all, okay? So, so Adam sits down, the animals come, and my, my guess, this is just speculation, my guess is at the beginning of this exercise, Adam probably has a lot of creative energy, right? He's probably really amped up about it. So he starts off pretty strong, right? The animals come, he's like hippopotamus, right? Duckbill platypus, right? Flamingo. Like he comes up with all these fun names. My guess is at the end of the day, he's probably just tired. So he's like, I don't know, starfish. It looks like a star. It's a fish. You know, catfish. looks like a cat. It's a fish. Jellyfish. looks like jelly. It's a fish. As speculation. That's not in the Bible. But he does all this, right? Names all the animals. But do do you notice... Why does God have him do this? Do you notice what the end result of this exercise is? Adam recognizes that there is no suitable companion for him. Isn't that fascinating? God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm gonna make a helper for him. But before I do that, Adam, I want you to deeply contemplate and look at every animal that I've created. And so as Adam is looking at each animal, not only is he contemplating the animal, but he's probably contemplating his own existence. He's probably thinking to himself, none of these are like me. None of them are like me. None of them, all of them have equal opposites. I don't have that. And my guess is that as a result of this process, Adam feels a deep longing for some type of partnership within him. 
He realizes that he's incomplete. He realizes that there was no suitable helper for him. And so now that Adam recognizes this, God says, okay, Adam, I want you to lay down. I want you to take a nap. And when you get up, I got a surprise for you. And look what God does. This is awesome. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, the Bible says he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. So check this out. God makes Adam go to sleep and he pulls out the rib of Adam and he creates the woman. He forms her. And I love what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says rather than Adam just waking up and Eve is just laying there, no, he brought her to the man. And why did he do that? Well, because God knows presentation matters, right? So God takes Eve, he creates her, and he holds her, and then Adam wakes up. And Adam's like, oh, man, that was crazy, something's missing. And all of a sudden, God's like, I got something for you. And the Bible says that he presents the woman to the man. It's almost the picture, you almost get this picture of a father giving away his daughter on her wedding day presenting his beautiful, because presentation matters. Presenting, it's a beautiful picture that God gives us. God brings his first daughter to his first son and he presents her to the man. And I can't help but wonder what Adam thought when he laid eyes on her for the first time. Because the dude had just seen animals all day long. And now this woman, the crown jewel of all of God's creation comes in. What did he think? Well, I'll tell you what he thought. We can actually see it. His response is what you would expect. Look at how Adam responds. This is great. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And I love this response. And the reason is because if you look at your Bible, you'll probably notice that this is indented. You notice that? The reason it's indented, Adam's response, is because Hebrew scholars unanimously agree that this is poetry or song. So you see what happens here, right? Adam lays eyes on the very first woman, and his response is to break into spontaneous song. That's what he does, right? He sees her, and he's like, oh, my life. I pray for someone like you, right? (laughs) Casey and Jojo, anybody? Anybody? Just dating myself here, all right? But do you, notice, do you notice the lyrical content of what he sings? This is great. He says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, what's he say? Man, she's like me. All these other creatures that are coming before me are different. But she's like me. She shares in the same dignity of being made in the image of God. She's a counterpart to me. But do you notice what else he says? She shall be called woman for she was taken out of the man. And by the way, that's actually a play on words. The word man in the Hebrew language is ish. In the Hebrew language, the word woman is isha. So what's he saying? He's saying, she's like me. She's like me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But she's different than me in all the right ways. She is different than me. She is complementary to me. And all of, what is he pointing out? He's just saying men and women are created equal in dignity and worth, but we are created different. I love the way that uh, Leon Cass puts it. Leon Cass uh, wrote this excellent article on gender. He said this, he said, some critics see in this account of woman's origin evidence that the text is sexist. Not only is man created first and woman second, but woman's being is derivative and dependent on the man. I love what he says, but the text even more readily supports the opposite view. He says, for one thing, the man's origin was lower from the dust. 
The woman begins from an already living flesh and moreover from flesh that's taken close to the heart. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. God created men and women equally, but he created us differently. He created us uniquely. To put it even more simple, the Bible says men and women are different. And some of you are like, you went to seminary for that? And I'm like, yes, I did. But, but listen, we live in a culture that tends to try, in the name of gender equality, tries to suppress our differences, tries to criticize our differences, try, tries to say that that's a, a bad thing that we're different. But the Bible would say, no, 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 no. We are equal, yes. We are equal in dignity and worth. We should honor each other as equal. But my goodness, let, let, let's not suppress the beauty of God's design in celebrating the fact that we are different, beautifully different. Do you notice in the Genesis account, for example, the Bible says that man and women were not only, we weren't just created at different times, we were created in different ways. How, how, how was Adam created? From the dust of the earth, from the dirt. How was woman created? Out of the man, out of the sight. We were created at different times, we were created in different ways. There's something different about us. It's not just a social construct. There's something in the created design of how God made us that's different. Do you notice in the Genesis account that men and women are created for different purposes? You see that? The expressed purpose of creation of man. God said, I'm going to create the man to work the field, to subdue the land. With woman, he said, I'm going to create her as a suitable helper for the man, which we're going to get into weeks to come exactly what that means and what that looks like. But there's different purposes in Genesis of why God created the, the, created the initiative of male and female. There's something different there. These differences, the Bible would say, are not an issue of societal constructionalism. They are an issue of created design. Go back to when God made humanity, and you will see that, yes, we are equal in dignity, but, man, we are different and we are unique in the way that God has created us. I told you earlier that uh, ever since the 1970s, for the past 40 years, it has been the most commonly accepted view in our society that gender is a social construct. What I find so fascinating, though, is in the past five to 10 years, there has been a preponderance of research that has said, uh, actually, we don't think it's a social construct anymore. There's, there's so much more to gender than what we thought. And so there's all these studies that are done by neurologists and psychologists and behavioral sociologists who say, no, men and women are different in so many different ways. So for example, on a cellular level, biologists have proven to us that masculinity and femininity is not just a matter of two people who have the same DNA that just have different plumbing systems. They said, no, on a cellular level, you will see that every molecule of our bodies is stamped with either an XX or an XY chromosome. It goes all the way down into our biology, how we're created by God at the very beginning. Uh, there was a study that was done I thought was really interesting uh, by a, a group of psychologists and neurologists that were trying to explain how boys and girls in their infancy, before culture can start to mold and to put social expectations on them, how there's differences in the way they process and the way that they navigate through life. And so, for example, I thought it was interesting. There was this one study. They put an obstacle in front of infant boys and an obstacle in front of infant girls. And what they found was that most of the time with infant boys, they would knock over the obstacle to get to where they want to go. With infant girls, they would either go around it or complain about it. 
You can do what you want with that. That's just the research. There was another study that was done. They played jazz music for six-month-old little girls and jazz music for six-month-old little boys. Six-month-old little girls, their heart rate would raise, and there was a ton of neurological activity that was happening. Six-month-old little boys, virtually no effect at all on them. Doesn't surprise you, right? They said, they said little girls tend to like complexity. Little boys tend not to. And they're explaining all of these. They're saying it's not just a matter of social. Con- now, there is elements of social expectations on genders, for sure. No one's going to debate that. But what they're saying is gender goes deeper than that. It's a matter of creation, how God has created us. And listen, I don't, I don't think we necessarily, it's awesome that we have all this research, but I don't think we need biology and neurologists to tell us that. I think we understand this innately. I just tell you from my own experience, I have um, three little kids, and some of, you, some of you know them, they're crazy. And I got two little boys, a seven-year-old and a six, so we had our boys first, seven and six, we had them close. So we were in man land for a long time, just raising boys. And then we had our little princess, she's a year and a half now. And I'm telling you, when we had her, I came to realize I am dealing with a very different creature. Totally different. I mean, they're, they're the same in a lot of ways. Man, she's different. In fact, I'll tell you this one story, and um, I guess at the risk of sounding, uh, uh, whatever, I'll just tell you. So we, we went to this play place, and um, there was like a, a bunch of inflatables, and then there was like a play area that had like toy slides and toy kitchens and stuff like that. So my, we got there, my boys went off and they were probably, I don't know, destroying something or like uh, jumping off of something. But I was watching my daughter. She was a year old at the time. And this is what she does, I kid you not. She goes over to this play kitchen, all right? She opens up the cabinet of this play kitchen and she, she'd never been here in her life. Pulls out a plate and pulls out a spoon. Closes the cabinet door. Walks over to the play refrigerator. She's a year old opens up the refrigerator, pretends to get food out, puts it on her plate, shuts the door. She walks over to the pretend microwave, opens it up, puts her food in, closes it, pushes buttons, waits. (laughs) Opens it up, pulls it out, shuts the door, sits down, blows on her food, pretends to eat her food, she gets up, she washes her plate, pretends to wash her plate, and puts it back in the cabinet. And I'm watching her and my jaw is on the floor because I thought to myself, I saw you do in one minute what I have yet to see college-age dudes do in four years. I was like, they're different, right? And, And some of you are like, are you saying that the place for women is in the kitchen? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is she is observant in ways that her brothers are not. They are different creatures. And you see, we live in a society that tries to say, no, we're all equal, and that means that we're all the same. And the Bible would say, no, don't limit it to that. That's so constraining. Yes, we're equal in dignity and worth, and yes, 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 but man, we are unique. And oh, we celebrate that. The gender differences are what make us so beautiful. It's what allows us to reflect the image of God to the world that we're in. We need both genders to do that. And you know what? It's those same differences that sometimes bring some of the greatest complexities in relationship too, right? Did you ever hear that old saying, uh, men are like dogs and women are like cats? Did you ever hear that? How do you please a dog? You feed them, you play with them, right? You scratch him behind his ear. How do you please a cat? Nobody knows. <laughs> That's, uh, there's truth in that, right? 
But we're made, we're made different. We're made different. That's what the Bible's saying. And we don't, what we do is we honor each other as equal. We, sell each, we celebrate each other as different because that's the way God made it from the very beginning. And that leads me to this third thing. And this is the last thing. And I, I really hope that you would just, if, if, you, if you hear every, anything we're saying, I pray you just hear my heart. Because this is the heart of the whole issue. God created men and women. He created gender the way he did, equally. And he's created us uniquely. But here's the big thing. He created it this way for our good. For our good and for his glory. He created it this way for our flourishing. For our fulfillment. For our freedom. He created it this way. And for his glory. That he would be it, that he would be able to reflect his image through both sexes in the way that he designed. It's for our good and it's for his glory. In fact, did you know the only time in the creation account that God says something is very good is after he makes man and woman? So everything is, it is good, it is good, it is good. It is not good for man to be alone. He creates the genders and he says, now that is very good. That is very good. That is good for them this is good for the flourishing of humanity. This is good for, for the reflection of God's image. This is very good. God created gender, gender roles and gender identity for our good and for his glory. And I'll tell you what breaks my heart is when you roll over to Genesis chapter three, and I'll just summarize this. In Genesis chapter three, sin enters the world for the very first time. And we see that all the things that God created for good became tainted and skewed. And what was it that caused the first sin to enter into the human story? Well, do you know what it was? It was one lie. It was one big lie. And do you know what the lie was? I'll tell you. I'll just summarize it for you. The serpent of old, Satan, came to Eve. And he said to her, did God really say you can't eat from that tree? And Eve said, yeah, God said we can eat from any tree we want, but we just can't eat from that one tree or we'll die. And then the enemy gave this lie. He said, you will not die. God is just trying to keep you from being like him. And I'll tell you what, he's trying to restrict you and he's trying to restrain you and he's doing all of this because he doesn't want you to be like him. And so if you really wanna flourish and if you really wanna be free and if you really wanna find fulfillment, then you need to run away from the things that God said. Listen, can I just tell you, that great lie, the original lie, I believe is the root issue of all, that, all the evil we see in our lives today. We believe the same lie. What is the lie? Here's the lie. If you wanna find freedom in this life, if you wanna find flourishing in this life, if you wanna find fulfillment in this life, you must run from the author of life. He's just trying to restrain you. When God says these things about sexuality and when God says these things about gender and when God says these things about marriage and when God says these things about the way that we should live our lives, he's trying to restrain you. He's trying to restrict you. He's trying to keep you from what's ultimately good for you. And so the way to find freedom and fulfillment in this life is to run, is to rage against the things that he said. And you guys, that, that great lie continues to persist today. And man, it's a lie. It's a lie. Because God has created all things for our good. For our good and for his glory. He's a good God who loves that of which he has created. 
love the way Proverbs says it. Proverbs says this. It says, there is a way that appears right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. There is a way that seems right to us as a culture and as a society. And oftentimes that way is to stiff arm the things that God has said and define and, and define and determine what we think is best on our own. But the Bible says in the end it leads to death. It leads to destruction. It leads to pain. It leads to regret. It leads to relational fallout. And it leads to hurt. And so the Bible says that it's for this very reason that Jesus had to come. Jesus says in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, but I have come that they may have life and they might have it to the full. So what is the heart of this conversation? Here's the heart of this conversation. God has created gender. He has created sexuality in a way that is for our good. And so when he, when he commands and when he leads and when he shows us the way that he wants us to go, it's not to restrict us or restrain us. It's not because it's anti-progress. It's because he wants to liberate us and free us. He's a good God. Now here's, here's, here's the thing. Unfortunately, unfortunately, when a conversation like this is had in most religious settings in America, the tone of that conversation, unfortunately, tends to be something like this. Hey, if you, if you are sexually broken, if you struggle with, with gender identity issues or gender dysphoria, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, you're wrong, you're in sin, and you're not welcome. And unfortunately, that is the message that has been pervasive in evangelicalism in our country today. In fact, I read this statistic. This probably wouldn't surprise you. A couple weeks ago, I read this. It said, the, do you know what the number one thing evangelical Christian churches in America are known for? Do you know what the number one thing we're known for is? Christians, the number one thing? It's being anti-gay. We're not even known for what we're for. We're known for what we're against. And that breaks my heart. And this is the reason it breaks my heart. If the church of Jesus Christ needs to be anything, it needs to be a safe place for the gender confused, for the sexually broken, for those who struggle with same-sex. If it needs to be anything, it needs to be a safe place for those who struggle. Because if it is not, we don't even believe the thing that we preach. Because what is it that we preach? Here's what we preach. The gospel in a nutshell you and I are more broken than we even know. Every one of us, I am more broken than you know, and I'm more broken than I know. Every single one of us. And so this is not a club of who's more righteous than the next person next to them. No, this is a collection of broken people who come stumbling in to find the way of life from the Savior. We all come to Christ together. We're more broken than we can imagine, but we're more accepted by God's grace than you can believe. And so you need to hear it from me. Hear it from me. If you're a person that struggles with gender dysphoria, if you're a person that struggles with same-sex attraction, if you're a person that struggles in those things and thinks, man, I could never come here because I would never be accepted or welcome here or loved here, let me just tell you, no, you are welcome here. You are welcome here along with the rest of us broken people because we're all broken. Now, also hear me say this. We believe that the way of, of Jesus, that Jesus has a definitive way that he wants us to approach sexuality and that he wants us to approach gender. We believe that. We do. 
But do we believe that that is restrictive and is repressive and is anti-progress? No, we do not. We think it's pro-freedom. It's because he's a good God who wants to lead us into fulfillment and wants to lead us into joy and wants to lead us into life because in him is where life is found. And so it's important. If you're a person that struggles in any of the ways that we mentioned, I just, I just want you to know that you might be thinking to yourself, man, I could never tell anybody. I'm gonna struggle in secret. I'm gonna struggle in private. And that's the way it's gonna be. And I would say, man, I'm sorry for that. This ought to be a place that we can talk openly about our brokenness, not because we're okay with brokenness, but we're not surprised by it either because we all need to come to Jesus to find what life really is, submit our lives to him. So next couple weeks, I wanna encourage you to come back. We're gonna talk about manhood and womanhood, how God has defined those things. Get a chance to do that.